Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for this episode, which today is another installment in the Focus Researchers Talk. The Focus Researchers Talk is a bank of talk by those researchers who have enjoyed particular success in publishing their work. My guests on Researchers Talk Tell us how they turn the data and the ideas into the many papers of impact which they have published. Today I'll be talking with Konrad Rieck, Professor of Computer Science at the Technische Universität Berlin. Konrad heads the Chair of Machine Learning and Security within the Berlin Institute for the Foundations of Learning and Data, or BIFOLD for short. Konrad's group are developing novel methods for detecting computer attacks, for analyzing malicious software, and for discovering security vulnerabilities. They also explore the security and privacy of learning algorithms. So let's begin today's episode, Conrad Rieck on Researchers Talk. Hi, Conrad, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello. So this uh, is an interview really that's much more about how you do the research rather than what it is that you're researching. And I like to break that down into three different directions of looking at the communication research, the scientific network, the scientific reading, and the scientific writing. Um, Perhaps we'll just pick up right there, the last one, scientific writing, the one that's most familiar to people when they think about research and communication. Is there, when you approach a project and you've entered into it, a moment where you can be sure, right, this is turning into something that's publishable? Are there any signs or any ways that you start to note down what's happening in the project or results that are coming in or the way ideas are actually being formulated where you can pretty be pretty sure that this is turning now into a paper? Yeah, that's I think it's an interesting but also very difficult question. Um, The first thing is that when you start research, you you typically have an idea or a, a question or some hypothesis. And from the start, it usually is not clear whether this will turn into a paper or not. And I think this is 
this is the nature of science somehow. Um, if, if this would be immediately clear, it would not be a good research question. And during the research, I mean, the, no, I would phrase it differently. We tr first tried to do some very simple experiments in the beginning to, to get a feeling for the problem we are tackling. And if it turns out that we can tackle it or we have the right ideas or the right methods in our hand, then we dig deeper. And then at some point there is the, the, the first result and then it becomes clear whether there's a novelty or not. And um, this is the moment where you have to, to think about how the, the final paper looks like and whether it is like a, a big uh, finding or whether it's more like a medium result that is maybe not publishable at the top place. That's a great answer. That, that really gives, um, in a very brief space, a, 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 a sort of three-step process to figuring out if you have a paper or not. It's also a refresh, refreshing view in a sense because it shows that you begin your work outside of the communication loop. You're you're looking at what is the problem in at base that we're even tackling before you come to the question of whether or not we can do it. Am I understanding that right? Yes, yes. I mean, in principle, if you want to do want to do good research, um, I think you need to have something that is fascinating. Um, of course, you, you could also start with something that is like low-hanging fruit in terms of results. But for, for me and also for the researchers I'm working with, um, we are fascinated by some things that are really hard. And tackling hard problems is most of the fun, to, to be honest, and also most of the pain. And so it's like a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a ambivalent situation. But if you want to really go for these hard problems, you cannot immediately see the paper. Instead, you, you have the idea and you have the feeling and you have the motivation and fascination. And from there, you start working. And as you said, it's a three-step process. So first, some simple experiments and then maybe more. And then later, you shape the, the outcome. And in terms of communication, this means that at the very beginning, it is not really clear what you will communicate. And that is something that happens in the writing itself. I mean, that you are really saying, okay, this is now what we found, and this is also what we think about it. So it's a combination, clearly, of you know, objective results with interpretation overlaid upon it. Would, would that, in a sense, describe this third stage where results are coming in and you, you appreciate their value? Yes, and there's something that we call it a Steckbrief. This is a small, I would say, memo overview of the whole project. And this, this document, it's a small markdown document. In many projects, we, we update it uh, during the course of a research project. And it starts with a few sentences or maybe some bullet points or maybe just a question. And then later, it, it gets more and more content. And then at some point, there's this question, how do we write this down in a way that the community can get the information because writing a paper is not only about presenting the results, but it's also about putting them in a context that people will read this and understand it. So I know a lot of work that is a little bit, let's say, undersold because it's so difficult to understand what the authors actually want to convey with their work. And so at the end of a project, there's also a lot of work on yeah, framing the whole thing so that it becomes an interesting paper that that has a that has a story that has a contribution um, that has corresponding results and that ultimately is is interesting and joyful to read because ultimately this is 
our work is not only about making progress, but it's also about convincing others to read about our research and learn about our progress. I'm imagining that in this write-up process towards the third stage where results are coming in and you're starting to recognize their significance, I'm imagining that as this Steckbrief, as you as you call it, yes. this, this uh, what was your other English term for it? So this um, memo overview. There you go. There you go. A, a memo of sorts. As it gets a bit fatter and fuller, that realizing what you want to say is happening in the process of trying to communicate it. Is is that? Is that possible? Because I would imagine from the entire process that you've just described from us from stage one all the way through stage three, that, you know, the the ideas are live. They're they're sparking as they go along. You're you're figuring out really what all this means as it's happening. Yes, exactly. And this this has a consequence that also what is essentially communicated is not fixed from the start and it can also change in the process. So to give you an example, there, there has been a recent paper where we, we tackled a problem, we wanted to solve it, and we found out that we cannot solve it. And then we looked at it from a theoretical perspective, and we could then even prove that it cannot be solved in the general case. So we, maybe we should have spent some more time in the library in, in the beginning, um, but it turns out that this is a very hard, unsolvable problem. So our initial idea of writing a paper like this is how we solve the problem turned into, hey guys, this is why you cannot solve the problem and why also we failed solving it. And um, I think this is this is something that, that also makes fun um, to me in work because it, it means that we are not kind of have a fixed idea and everything works out as planned, but we are in, in a process where we really uncover information or yeah, knowledge and this knowledge might not be what we expect in the beginning and um, it puts also a lot of effort on the later stage of writing this down because um, as computer scientists and I'm not speaking only for myself but also for my team we are not used to writing most of us don't like writing at all we like programming which is also writing but code but if we have to write text it becomes difficult for us and therefore, this, this last step is um, something that yeah, requires a lot of effort on our side. And it would seem to be, though, that it's also so still something that's extremely valuable, though, for the results or for the findings more generally. I mean, this example that you give um, could be a devastating moment in some projects and some teams, you know, uh, history, they would think, oh my God, all of this work. And it turns out it's actually impossible, but it was in the communication end of that project that the entire team realized the significance of what they had really discovered. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there has been this devastating moment. So it is, I mean, it, it's, of course, if you have an idea and you want to do it and it turns out it doesn't work, that, that's always sad and it's also frustrating for, for example, PhD students um, because they, they need these publications and they need the papers to do their PhD thesis. And at first, then this puts them back and of course they, they are frustrated. Um, and, and there comes the moment when, when one has to make the step back and maybe also these three steps that we talked about are not always um, sequential. So sometimes we have to iterate and then stepping back and saying, like, hey, we thought this is possible, but it's not possible. So maybe many other researchers in the world have the same intuition, and this intuition is false. 
And, um, and, and as part of this progress, then one can step back and refine the goals and start developing a new way of framing the result. I mean, not sure framing is the right word, but I, I think it's the result essentially is the same, but it, it is now packed into a new story. And the story is that there might be the idea of something working and it's not working. This is just an example. But I wanted just to say this frustrating moment, and th this happens all the time. Um, I think research to some extent is about um, failures and frustration. Because as I said in the beginning, if, if you don't tackle a hard problem, it's not fun at all. And then it's boring. And, and But if you tackle something hard, there's, there's inherently the risk of failing. This is this high risk, high gain uh, paradigm that, that many uh, often say. Right. And you, you mentioned there, we're talking here also about a team. Science is done in teams. Computer science uh, is no different there. And you mentioned also with PhD students that this can be a moment where, oh, they don't get back from all the work that they've put into it anything. Maybe the idea actually just doesn't pan out. Um, I, I would like to hear, though, from you as, as a, the leader of a research group what, what is your strategy for leading PhD students through the process, this, this stage of creating a paper? Because you've got on the one hand, as you say, particular to, uh, well, I wouldn't say it's particular to computer science. I, I would say a lot of scientists are challenged by writing. What they don't realize is everybody in the whole world is challenged by writing. So you're, you're not alone. There's always different sorts of challenges in writing. But this, this challenge of writing for the computer scientist, how is it that you bring in your PhD students to, to that normal everyday practice of the scientist writing papers? Yeah, I think, it's, as you said, it, it, it's a struggle. <laughs> and, and at the same time, um, I highly recommend every student to read papers. And they have to, and they enjoy reading papers because they, they are interested in the topic and they want to learn more and they are fascinated by new results. So what I try to do here is that I... I try to convince them if, that if they enjoy reading, that they maybe reflect a little bit on what they like about a certain paper. What makes this paper better than another one? And often they start with the results, but if, if they look deeper, they find out that it's not only the particular results or a new approach, but often it is how this is written down, how it is conveyed to, to the reader. Um, and that, uh, that a great care is, for example, taken to, to make complex uh, concepts um, easy to understand. And once this, you have realized that this, this, the joy of reading something comes from good writing, um, you can also reflect on your own writing and notice that you're maybe not doing a good job because you're just writing down what you've done, more like a report or something. And then it, it's more about... Um, getting something that really makes sure the knowledge is transferred from the writer to the reader. I have to also say, however, that what I just said is very abstract. And if you're sitting in front of your text editor, none of this helps <laughs> because it's very hard to, for example, if you're sitting at a certain situation, you want to write it down, but you don't know exactly how to phrase it. And my experience, there's no silver bullet here. And the best thing is to try it. Um, the one recommendation that I learned during my PhD is if you really don't know what to do, just write something. Write it in the worst possible form. Just write it down. Um, and then later read over it, and then you will discover the shortcomings, and you will notice maybe the, the, the not perfect um, uh, 
um, setting and, and then you rewrite it and then maybe you let it sit another day uh, and read it again and the next day. And so you incrementally improve your writing. There's also some saying that I, I uh, tell my students, so a paper is never um, uh, finished. It, it converges to the perfect state but it converges in the sense that it never reaches the perfect state. So if you take a paper that you have polished for weeks and look at it again, you might find things that you want to change then. And if you look again and again, you will always find something to make better. And so there isn't like something like the ultimate written paper or the ultimate text. Everything is in flux and you need to uh, find for a given time frame the best that you can do and this might not be the best on the world but this is what you can do and this is what you maybe also want to do yeah? you don't want to become a um, uh, writer you are still a scientist or researcher so the writing is like the second job not the first what you're describing there is is something that people would call research as a conversation and it happens at the level of the individual and it happens at the level of the research community I mean, at the individual level is what you've just said, where just get it down to get started with. It, it, it doesn't really matter. And then when you come back to it, you'll almost hear your old self talking in that text and realize what your new self now can add to that or disagree with or refute or improve or whatever it might be. And this same exact model just reappears throughout the entire literature, doesn't it? I mean, that's how... Uh, expert readers like yourself, researchers like yourself, read other papers. It's like a conversation with the author, in a sense. And to view the papers in that way, to see them as this contribution to this larger discourse and not perfect, polished objects, is is probably a very productive view and seems to be much of what you're saying. Yes, but I would, I, I'm not sure whether it's really a conversation. Maybe... My feeling is more it's like that you have to learn to switch roles and there's there's the role of the reader and, and the role of the writer and, and you, you as writer want to write for the reader so you need to somehow um, assume these roles and switch between them and um, in my experience it, it's, it helps to put some time in between these switches especially in the beginning. So um, this could also be seen as a conversation which is which is true yes. I, I like this, though, the, the view that you give of the role of the reader and the role of the writer prov provides us a nice transition over into our second topic, which is scientific reading, um, an idea that I've been trying to propagate as a counterweight to scientific writing. So your idea that there is a writer and a reader involved in science is, is very much in, in my sense of all this. <laughs> um, but what would be one of the major shifts or switches, as you say, from going from that writer of a paper to a reader of a paper? Maybe even just start very personally with yourself. Do, do you notice a different mode setting in for yourself? <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's a mode, but I mean, we are, we are driven by, the, by things we want to do. So for example, if I'm reading a paper, very likely I just don't want to read the paper as the task, but I want to, for example, um, digest the information in the paper because it has an interesting title or because it was recommended or because it appeared in a related work section. So there's a reason I want to read the paper. And maybe also I want to do something with the information that I get from the paper. And 
for me, switching these roles means that as a writer, I have to think about people that read this paper. They, they likely won't read it just because I'm so great or because my research is so interesting. Maybe they read it for another purpose. Maybe they found it or maybe they want to have it as a building block of something else. And um, thinking about these, these let's, let's say, interests of the others or goals uh, or objectives that they are driven by um, makes writing easier because then you, you notice that certain things you would write down, they don't make sense if somebody is reading the paper not just out of uh, interest, but maybe to do something else. Um, and if it comes to scientific writing, a uh, reading, as you said, um, I would also, in the beginning, before reading a paper, I would, I would think, why am I reading this? So why am I'm going to, or how much time do I want to to spend on this? Do I want to read the paper in a level of detail that I know everything of the paper? Sometimes this is necessary. For example, if this is a, if, if this is some competing work and, and you want to really know how exactly does this work um, functions, what's inside. And, and then there's also the, the, I would say, medium level reading where you don't need to get all of the details, but a lot uh, so that you can maybe uh, think about whether this is relevant or not in the context you're looking at. And, and lastly, there, I also think there's something like light level reading where you maybe you have to, to move into a, compute, a um, completely new field and you want to just see a little bit the, the different topics in this field and then you cannot waste uh, three hours reading each paper. So instead you maybe just spend like 30 minutes on a paper and then you can just very lightly read the contents to get a rough idea. And I think scientific reading, if this term <laughs> exists, uh, means that you have a good understanding of what you are doing and how deep you need to go and how deep you want to go. That's wonderful. You've you've helped me to find a term that I'm trying to establish. <laughs> this is uh, so. As I mean, essentially, you're coming back to the the use value of the text itself. I mean, as yes. a writer, as you say, you're considering well, what are my readers' purposes? And very consistently, you go on to say, well, as a reader, what are my purposes? That's that's the let's say the gist of it. Yeah. Yes. That's that, that that's wonderful. I think that's useful on both sides because. Um, Let's say early career researchers, PhDs, often spend too much time in both of those tasks, writing and reading, sometimes on the wrong things. They, they miss this purpose perspective. So when reading a paper, it's a cover-to-cover -cover activity, just to be thorough. And when writing a paper, to pick up a word you use earlier, it's presenting everything. But neither of these really serve this idea of, of foregrounding purposes of the community. Yes, but I, I have to say, and, and I need to be honest here, so it, it's not that I kind of thought about this in the beginning and said, like, I like to spend my time like this and I'm a super organized person. Uh, the opposite might be the case. It's more that the, the more you do research, the larger your group gets, um, the less time you have. And, and there comes also university administration and, and teaching stuff. So you have very little time. And, and the less time you have, you, you better need to plan this time. And therefore, I, I already, when I, I have time and want to read something, uh, I, I have a deadline. So I cannot spend like eight hours reading one paper. So maybe I have two hours and then now I can make a decision. Do I read four papers? Do I read two papers? Or do I just read one paper? And this is something that I learned maybe the hard way over the time to, to think about in advance and then take the time that I consider to be uh, reasonable. And it might also, also happen then later, like in research, um, 
that my decision was not appropriate. So maybe I, I find out that reading the paper takes only 10 minutes because it's crap, or maybe I find out this is one of the greatest papers that I've read in a long time. So I want to dig deeper. So this, this also is something where you need to be flexible. But I also like the idea of, of, of contrasting scientific writing with scientific reading in some sense. Yeah, well, I, I mean, part of the purpose of this podcast, you're speaking to directly at this moment, um, Conrad, what you've just said as something through experience and your daily work routine has shown you to be the best way to go about reading is something that will take the next PhD student, the next early career researcher, you know, again, 10 years to figure out or a new position or a promotion or something like that. And, and I feel that let's be transparent because it's important for early career researchers to know that important researchers like yourself, people who may be citing their work, this is the way they read. And I know that you don't, you're not the only one out there who's reading that way. <laughs> so, and, and, and this is, this is, I think, new information to, to people who are starting off in their career or, uh, your experience there is far vaster than mine. Um, it's, do you notice a difference in reading habits early on in somebody's uh, work with you and before they maybe finish off and start their new direction in their career? I mean, yes, yes, of course. And I, 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 I notice different reading um, habits or, or different reading depths. But I also think, and this is maybe something to not forget, if, if, uh, if we think of new uh, PhD students, I think it's important for them to maybe listen to this podcast and think about what I say, but it's also very important for them to kind of object or decide to do it differently um, and then figure out themselves and maybe make the same conclusions that I did. Um, because I, this is, I think this is also part of science or research that um, certain things take time and take experience and if you if you if you really want to take the fast lane and learn from all the best and distill all of this information, my feeling is that this doesn't really necessarily lead to progress, but maybe this brings you to some kind of automated researcher that doesn't really have a, a heart at the right place. Um, and because it's it's also important to to waste time, to make mistakes, um, to make the wrong decisions in life. Um, and I tell this to my PhD students and also to myself that th this is also part of the progress of doing research and, and moving forward. And moving forward, in my view, always includes sometimes making a step backward and noticing failures. And so um, although we uh, kind of discussed very smart things so far, um, I think every early every research, every career researcher is really free to to repeat these mistakes. I wouldn't count this against them, but instead I would say it's it's perfectly okay to disagree with the old guys telling you how to do things. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're, they're happy to hear this. <laughs> um, yes, uh, for sure. I mean, the best teacher is experience. I mean, hands down, right? Um, I suppose part of the mission here is to just add to that experience, accelerate it perhaps, um, but it's it's irreplaceable. I mean, your point is, is definitely well taken there. Um, one other area in reading that I often like to explore with, with my guests, um, and it relates very nicely to your sort of three-step model in, and I know this is an abstraction. I'm sure very many projects don't cross through all the three steps that you gave us there, but it was a very nice answer to give us a conceptualization. And that three-step model that you gave us, you, you talk about when the, the results come in and you start to have to make a judgment about their novelty. 
I wonder if you could give us a sense as to what your reading on that project then contributes to those decisions. Because I, I think it's rather obvious that the judgment of novelty is going to clearly be against what's out there, isn't it? Yes. And also it's, um, it's difficult to, 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 to judge novelty and that requires reading, as you say. Um, to be honest, so what often happens in, in, in our projects is that I do this kind of lightweight reading of literature and then I sometimes, even though I'm the leader in that sense, uh, make the wrong decision to say like, hey, this, this looks super novel. And my students have to correct me and say like, well, if you look a little bit closer in the paper, you will see that it's not so novel. And, and I think this is an interesting situation because um, the question here is why is this novelty that, that, that we don't have in this case, why is it somewhere hidden in a paper? And why did the authors, for example, decided in their work to not make this prominently in the, in the, let's say in the introduction or something like that? And very often, if you think about what happened, um, you, you can notice something that is maybe not written in the paper. So, for example, problems that occurred or um, difficult experiments that, 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 they, that the authors in the, in the related work somehow decided to not put at the very beginning or not to kind of sell um, as the main part of the story. And very often, here <laughs> are these small spots where you can find novelty unless you have something completely novel. But if, if you're working in a, let's say, well-researched field, um, you need to, to find these spots where you can find novelty. And often in my experiments, there are these small gaps, small experiments that you find where people say, yeah, we also did this and that, and it worked okay. And if this is just, just a one paragraph, for example, in a long paper, I, I'm wondering, okay, if it worked so, let's say, nicely, why didn't they put this uh, in an own section? And um, often it turns out, if you if you play around with these things, that there's um, unsolved problems, and unsolved problems uh, need to research, go to uh, research and ultimately create novelty when they are solved. Or, as I said uh, previously, if you find out that they cannot be solved, and then you get a negative result, which is also novelty. So this is a, a sort of reading that needs to uncover stuff that's a bit more buried. I, I, I can recognize the possible tension then here. I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious and clear to everyone that there's just too many papers to read. And people are always looking for techniques and, and methods to, to get through the literature in the most effective manner. And if some of those gaps that you're noticing are really the ones that, let's say, a PhD student who is really buried deep down into a focus in the research is going to notice only, right? Or perhaps most likely, then this creates a tension between, okay, well, how do I look for those sorts of things if that's what your research usually builds upon? Yeah, I wouldn't say this. I mean, uh, this is one way of finding novelty. Uh, I wouldn't say this is like the usual approach, but this is something that 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 happens at least I noticed this happening because often it's kind of surprising to me. Um, the other, of course, there are other like more common strategies to, to seek novelty. Um, often um, related work, previous work, very clearly expresses things that they couldn't do. Um, and if you're really looking for hard problems, the best thing is to, to take some work in your area um, and read the introduction or read the, the conclusions and find the points where they say, yeah, of course, we didn't do it like that because this is not possible or this is extremely hard. 
then very likely underneath you will find a very difficult problem. And difficult problems, as I said, come with novelty if you can solve them. Um, the other strategy, and this is something um, specific to security, which, which is part of my research, um, security can be described as a game between an, an attacker and a defender. So most of the papers and research boils down to either proposing a new attack or proposing a new defense. And this automatically creates um, a lot of opportunity for novelties because whenever somebody says like, hey, I have a new defense, you can challenge this and say like, well, let's, let's see whether we can break it. And the other way around, um, when there's a new attack and people claim that this is very severe attack, you, you can look for spots where also the attack has its weaknesses. And then you can try to exploit weaknesses in the attack and say like, hey, the attack only works if this condition holds. But if I'm, um, uh, if I'm removing this condition from the system that is attacked, for example, um, the attack does not work anymore. So in security, there's this... I would say special opportunity to um, involve in this attacker defender game and thereby create novelty, I would say quite easily, if things work, of course. Yes, okay, <laughs> for sure. Um, the time is telling me it's a good idea to move on to our third and last topic, which um, is perhaps also a little, even more unconventional than scientific reading. I, I call it scientific network. You might just think of it as collaboration in the broadest sense or the social side of science. So yes. who you collaborate with, meet with, solve problems with, teach, administrate with, um, the whole bag of things that involve people in research. I, I think you'll accept that people are the reason that research probably at the end of the day happens, right? I mean, <laughs> so if, if, if you imagine that entire cloud of, of, of connections that you find yourself in, what might be one node that would represent one of your roles that you might pick out? And, and how would you describe the activity that you're doing at that node as it contributes to your research? Yeah, so I maybe I, I, I start with answering a different question. That's <laughs> um, a good idea, and... because that was a bad question. <laughs> I often I have the feeling that early career researchers and also sometimes there's also programs at university universities that really want to uh, support and enhance networking and I have the feeling that sometimes people have the impression that once you do networking um, everything is set for you to to become some successful researcher and my experience is different so I think networking is important but it's not that if you know a couple of other researchers that automatically you make progress. Um, because my feeling is often these researchers are also looking for other researchers. And there's, there's this kind of story that if they meet, then automatically something magically happens. But um, often, at least in my experience, this is not the case. Um, and I think that there's like, so if it comes, I'm not sure for notes or roles, but I think in a, in a network or with people you like to work together, um, the first thing that you need to have is trust. Um, so it's, it's not only about expertise or, or being super important or something like that, but it's, it's also about trust because ultimately um, you will jointly work on a new topic. And if this topic is somehow stolen by the other party, this is the worst case scenario. So you, you need to look for 
people that you really want to work with and that you trust. And that is also, personally, I would say it's also necessary that it's a joy to work with them, that, that you're really looking forward to, that you say, hey, I'm looking forward to this meeting. And we all know uh, often people don't look forward to meetings because they, they feel like it's a waste of time. So this is the not a good, I would say, networking setting. Most and the other thing, yeah. oh, sorry. maybe, yeah. maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe I, I make some, I make, so there's so, so much different levels of networking, but maybe I, I try to make two extreme cases here. So one case is really uh, a collaboration where you, where you really like to work with each other and where it's more like turning into a friendship ultimately, or something like, yeah, friendship like, which is great. And then there's the, what I also personally uh, enjoy is that you don't work with somebody at all but you follow their research. Um, and so maybe you meet them at a conference and, and have a small chat, but um, from time to time, you check what these people are doing because you, you like what they are doing. And in this case, it's not a collaboration. Maybe it's not even networking, um, but I have, I'm so to say, a fanboy of certain other researchers and they don't know, maybe they know, but I don't know. And I'm looking what they're doing and what, and, 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 and what they are working on. And I think this is a, the opposite of the trust relationship, this is a very lightweight networking thing, but I still think this matters um, because networking doesn't necessarily mean that people meet and talk. It can also be that people just read each other's papers, maybe without knowing. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think that that's what's meant when we talk about the community or the research community and that there are certain connections that are firing more strongly than other ones. So these would be the people that you, I might call it shadow collaborate with, <laughs> who, 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 you know, you don't know if they know you, but, <laughs> but you'd be, you'd be pleased. Well, I mean, would you even go so far as, I mean, I would say this would be the ultimate in noticing if that collaboration is working. Would you even go so far as to note whether or not they've cited your work? Because interest in what they're doing must mean you would want be want to be contributing to yes. what what they're having as outcomes. Yes, I mean this is something that we we talked about uh, before. This is this maybe kind of conversation, which, which is not a real conversation, but it's it's if you're looking at some other approach. Maybe you talk about this approach in your related work or somewhere else, and then in the in the the follow up work from the other side, you see mentioning of your own work. And so there is, is a very slow and indirect form of conversation between, I wouldn't say researchers, but maybe research groups, because usually a paper is not written by a single person. So it seems that these research groups, how to say, click with each other in some sense, and, and that they enjoy reading and uh, each other's work and also um, writing about it. I mean, I think that tells us something about scientific text. This this brings us back to one of our first points yes. about this conversation, as you were saying, that scientific text is, in a sense, a kind of locus, a place, um, you know, like a mini conference, let's say. <laughs> you know, every, every text out there is just a mini conference where, you know, if you look in the related work, as you've just been describing, and they've picked up the idea that you were working on and and, and picked it up in the way that you would have expected in that context it be picked up, well, then things are that your idea is working out, isn't it? It's gotten across. Yes, but I also have to say, because what we describe is also a little bit like the, the best of scientific reading and writing um, and the best of networking. The truth is, of course, that many papers are not written in this way. 
um, for many different reasons. Sometimes it's on the side of the authors, sometimes it's maybe on the side of the reviewers that want to have changes to it and things like that. So um, especially as we talked about uh, young researchers, I mean, they, they, sh they shouldn't expect that this kind of conversation and nice, really, I would say, um, something in the heart of science, like this conversation, um, of course, this doesn't happen all the time, but it's also, I mean, honestly, it's, I would say it's rare. And also everything that we do in my group, I mean, not every paper is uh, um, re really like a, a, an important point in, in a dialogue of researchers. Sometimes it's just the necessary next step. Um, and this is also okay. It, it's a little bit like a newspaper and a newspaper has many articles in it. And some articles are really great. Other articles are maybe necessary or um or they're just there to convey a certain information, which is also necessary, um, but maybe not this fascinating. That, that, that's a wonderful image to be working with, the different sections of the newspaper. I mean, part of the purpose of this podcast is, is really just to jog people's thinking. So very much in the spirit of what you were saying before, also so that people disagree with us or you or me or whatever, right? Um, <laughs> but I, I find that it, it, it pays to reflect upon what it is that we're doing when we're actually communicating the research, because I think it can be to your detriment if you don't reflect at all upon what it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think th that's also something that I tell my students. Uh, often um, reflecting about one's own role and what I'm, what one actually is doing helps. Um, and th this is not just saying I'm, I'm this is uh, the position I'm hired or this is my uh, thesis topic, but it's also reflecting like when I'm reading a paper, um, some other PhD student maybe wrote it who's in my shoes and, and vice versa. And if I go to a conference and network with others, um, the others might feel the same thing as I feel. And you, as you said previously, um, if I hate writing, uh, maybe I'm not alone. And this, this reflection on the own activity is helpful, um, even if it's not directly related to the research topic. So even kind of thinking about the meta level of how research could be done or how research should not be done. All of this contributes in the end uh, to, to writing better papers. And, and writing better papers ultimately means um, transporting information better. And this, in turn, means moving science forward. And uh, th that's what our ultimate goal is. And this is what we, we work for, I, I think, at least. On this topic of network again, or collaboration again, in, in the broadest sense, throughout this interview, you, you've mentioned PhDs, which, which reminds our listeners, you lead a research group, you bring people, um, early career researchers through one of their first major academic stages of, of development and so on, and, and maybe even have postdocs um, under your care. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about teaching and mentoring and how that figures into your research. Do you, do you draw a line from the sort of supervision that you do to the research outcomes that you have? Yeah, I, this, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't want to come across too structured. Of course, I also have some ideas here, but the, I mean, the truth is that I very often um, do not make any difference, for example, between PhD students and postdocs. At the first glance, I mean, ultimately, we are all in the same boat, and I think um, we all need to improve, including me, and, and um, become maybe more efficient or 
uh, tackle challenges that we maybe didn't want to tackle before for, I don't know, personal reasons or technical reasons and things like that. So ultimately, I would say we are all somehow on a, on a, on a trip or so, improving ourselves. But if I uh, need to talk more in detail with people on research, of course, it makes a difference in supervision, whether I'm talking with a master student that's maybe writing his or her first uh, thesis, first scientific work, to, so to say, or if I'm talking with a PhD student who maybe already has some experience in research, maybe has published a first paper and now is looking on um, what to do next. I, I think this is often a very important step. Um, and of course, it, this is different from a postdoc researcher or maybe a junior professor who's, who's maybe not supervised in that sense, but whom I can give advice, or at least they can ask me for advice. Um, and, and, and so I would say it, it depends on, on, on the level um, of, of, the, of the career. But at the same time, um, when I'm working with people, I'm not so abstract. And I, I usually am just talking uh, whatever I think is um, helpful and also what maybe I also want to talk about. Yeah? So it's, maybe it's not even helpful. Yeah? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, maybe zoom in um, to that. Well, one interesting scenario that you just brought up there with a PhD uh, who perhaps has just finished off a first paper and is sort of feeling forward towards the next topic. Um, is, is, is this a scenario that you find often amongst uh, PhD students? And, and, and what is it that you might do there often to, to to provide support yeah i mean uh, it's it's a it's it's a very awful scenario because students need to write papers so they have to write a first one and then they have to write a second one and what often happens is that when you hire a phd student or you you supervise you start supervising um, somebody um, that in, in the beginning you talk about possible ideas what you have in mind and often what they have in mind and then you make something like a roadmap and then you work on the first project jointly. And if it turns out that everything works fine, which is also not often the case, but then you get this first publication. But as, as you develop this publication and as you get in the first results and as you get more familiar with the related work, um, you learn about this part of research. You also learn about the community that is doing this research. And in my experience, it happened, I would say often, that students find out that they, they really don't like this, what, what they are kind of uncovering. Maybe not the results, but maybe they find that this is a community that um, has different um, goals or that, that they want to research, look at things that they don't consider to be interesting. And then they need to reorientate. And the first paper, I think, is often the point where this reorientation needs to happen because uh, you cannot write two more papers on a topic that you don't like. Ultimately, uh, research should be fun. And so, and, and then um, you need after the first attempt and the first experience to, to see, yeah, maybe I need to explore something else. And then my advice is typically to, to not jump at a completely different topic because then you need to start from scratch, but instead from the existing paper, move into a related direction. And um, in my experience, um, this is often possible and ultimately, when people then later write down their thesis, they also can, can, can put things together and say like, well, I'm exploring different aspects of a topic. The first paper is topic A, uh, and the, the, first, um, the second paper is also topic A, but it's aspect B of it. And then this makes a nice story and also a nice scientific contribution. 
That's very sound advice. Practical, but also useful for the person's uh, sort of research orientation, I see. Um, to, to, to close out, Conrad, I, I like to generally ask my guests, the podcast here is really aimed at just helping the research, helping authors submit better papers, um, reviewers review better, uh, chairs uh, publish better, and so on and so forth, all down the line. Um, if, if you could pick out any one thing that you're seeing being done in the research, be it big, small, little, medium, and that you would say, hey, if we could just change this one thing, we'd be doing that much better. But what might that be? And, and, and what would be the change or the direction anyway of the change you would perhaps suggest? I think this is a very hard question. Um... I think that many things do not work as we maybe want them to work. And changing these things is extremely difficult. For example, the review process, at least for computer security, is problematic. Um, many papers, many rejections, and so on and so forth. This holds for also other dis disciplines. I, I, can, I cannot say the point that we need to change, but I can, I can at least personally and also from my group say that we try to, to not lose uh, uh, I think I stressed this also a couple of times, not to lose fun in the whole thing, because um, when, when, a, when a person decides to go for a PhD or for a master, uh, often there's something in, inside the person that I, I really like the topic. For example, I really love computers. It's, it's not that, that I, I do this to make money. It's, it's really something personal and it's fun for me. And, I, and uh, sometimes I'm missing the fun and I try as best as possible to, to get it back, which is very difficult. But I think the more we enjoy doing research, uh, the better the research gets. This is my feeling. And I know from, from others that this is not always the case. In, in other groups, there's, let's say, more pressure or there's uh, more hierarchy and things like that. So my recommendation, maybe now I have it, is less pressure, less hierarchies in research. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, Conrad. <laughs> yes. That is Conrad Rieck, and he is Professor of Computer Science at the Technische Universität in Berlin. This is goodbye from me to Conrad. Goodbye. Bye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time, here on this Focus, researchers talk.